Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Oshita Moore. And I'm Jer Swigart. Join us as we grow our imaginations for joining God and others in mending divides. Fear runs deep, spreading like a virus. Hate is cheap. From afar it costs you nothing. Sister, take my hand. Brother, we will stand. Open up. Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Jer. I'm with Oshida. We're ready to get after it again today. And friends, before we do, I want to just acknowledge that the horrors continue to unfold in Israel and Palestine. And our Global Immersion team is working tirelessly with our partners around the country and around the world to achieve a ceasefire. The violence has to end. We're trying to figure out how to grow our understanding of what's happening through the lenses of Jesus and peacemaking. And we're trying to find ways to reflect on this such that those maybe on the other side aren't dehumanized. Uh, we need each other. We need to take a, a, a journey to become more pro-human in this regard. Toward that end, Global Immersion is facilitating a virtual immersion. That means that we're amplifying the voices and the perspectives of our Palestinian and Israeli peacemaking partners. We're bringing you real-time, live, vulnerable perspectives from within the trenches of this war. You're seeing it unfold in Global Immersion's Instagram channel. We're also publishing the virtual immersion conversations here in this podcast feed. We encourage you to follow along, grow not only your understanding, but your circle of human concern. Expand the reach of your empathy right now. It's critical. For today's conversation, Oshida and I, a few weeks back, were talking about bridging ideological difference. We even did an episode on it, and I told a story about how I was bridging ideological difference with my dad, and it awakened something really critical in Oshida. And that's what we want to focus on here today. Take us away, Oshida. Yeah, as I was listening to you tell the story of how you and your dad worked through your ideological differences, I was just struck with the beauty of the relationship, how it grew, how there was a, an, an awareness of each other's humanity, a curiosity about each other's stories. And like you brought, it was a, it was a testimony. You brought us a testimony of how you have seen a commitment to peacemaking by bridging an ideological difference or differences with your dad, how you saw peacemaking actually work. And the whole time you were talking, I was thinking, and I think I said in the episode, like there are some distinct parts of your relationship that facilitated that peacemaking work. The first was that you are family. And the second that I noticed was that you are both white men. You're people from dominant culture. And so for both of you, while both of you have really strong emotions and there is a deep care for the people who would be experiencing major life changes based on policies, neither one of you, your lived experience would be changed that much because of your ideology. And so I was really curious as you were talking, what cautions do we need to offer if we are inviting our everyday peacemakers into this work, when they are talking to someone whose real lived experience is going to change, if 
the idea that you hold becomes a prevalent idea and creates policy or a massive change within their community or their context. Like, you know, my husband, who's a white man, often says this. He's like, for me, it, it, it can live as a fun thought experiment and I can get really caught into the ideas around it. I can get really caught into the debate around it. And that that that's fun for me, but I can walk away from it. He said, I don't walk away from it because I'm married to you. So I have some sort of like relational connection because if something happens around women's rights or voter suppression for black and brown people, like if something like that happens, he's going to experience some of it, not to the same extent as I would, but he always is mindful to tell me that, that like, I know that it's a privilege as a dominant culture person to be able to have these conversations and then walk away. So I was just really curious. And as I was sitting with it, I was reminded of a back and forth that I had with a white man and we'll call him Rob. Mm. Rob. To all um, of you, to all of you Robs out there, she is not talking not, I'm not talking about you. I really just pulled that name right out of my head, out of my hat. It's a good um, it's a good white male name. Way to go. It is. <laughs> and he had heard me stare right after George Floyd in a panel that I was a part of, George Floyd's murder. He heard me share that I felt like it was important for white people who want to be allies in this work in this moment to educate themselves on what the issues are, educate themselves on the different groups that are a part of it, educate themselves on the language before they begin to talk to their black and brown friends and family about this. And I explained in that panel that, you know, the landmines are, there's so many and that in order for that conversation to get us to a place of peace, there is an agility that dominant culture people need to have, white people in this case, need to have. And that agility only comes from education. So if you know that when you're talking to someone who is saying, defund the police, and while you may, as a white person, feel really like deep affection or care or respect for police, maybe you even have somebody in law enforcement in your family that you're like, I know they're a good person and they're doing this work from a good place. If you don't understand the origins of policing in America, if you don't understand the ways that policing has been executed and harmed people in black and brown, low income communities, like if you don't understand any of this and you get into a conversation with a black person who has that lived experience, there's an expectation that you'll have that they'll just see your heart. You just want to kind of understand each other, but you don't really have language and you don't have the experience and the empathy that comes from that to say like, wow, I can understand why you really want to defund the police. There's so much going on here. And so I was explaining that from the stage. So then he emails me and he's like, I was really concerned about what you said. Will you meet up and have coffee with me and tell me more? And I was like, Hi, Rob. Thanks so much. I'm so glad that you were at this event. Um, I don't really know you and I don't really meet up with people that I don't know for these kinds of conversations because what I have experienced as a Black woman in these conversations with white men is that we get stuck in the theoretical, we get stuck in sort of a debate posture. Mm -hmm. And I find that I am having a conversation where I'm having to defend my own worth and dignity at some point. 
Mm. that the ideas that I hold are not because I am anti-white or I'm anti-peacemaking. The ideas that I hold are deeply connected to to my lived experience. And I was like, I just, that's not a conversation that I want to have with somebody that I don't know. So if you and I don't know each other and I like, so then I gave him some options of educating himself. Like, would you mind taking a look at this YouTube video? Would you mind, like, have you read my book? Like, would you mind doing these sorts of things so that I know that we have some shared language and then we can come together and we could talk about those things that you learned and I can be a, a companion to you in that process so that I can get to a place where I feel comfortable then entering into the debate that we have over the initial conversation, the initial issue. And he was really resistant to that. And I realized that what was going on was he had such a limited picture of what peacemaking and reconciliation could look like for him and me. Hmm. His picture was, let's have a conversation and I'll hear your story. You're, you'll hear my story. Eventually, we'll come to some sort of middle ground. I'll walk away feeling good because I engage with you. You'll walk away feeling good because you got to tell your story. And that's it. And what I was saying was like, no, peacemaking for me is this long journey of building trust and relationship to where I know that when we have this conversation, I know that you know the language that could trigger me. I know that I know your stories of how you got to that place and we can be our most empathic selves in this conversation. And it and, and you know be, and because he was so resistant, I didn't feel like I had space nor did I think it was appropriate for me to like come back to him and explain all that. He basically just left the email conversation like I'm deeply disappointed in you and I was like I'm very sorry mm. about that, but like peacemaking doesn't mean I don't get to set boundaries, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not right. a doormat. And so I was just thinking like, gosh, for those of us who are listening, who are a part of a group who we enter into these conversations and there is a power differential, there is stuff, being able to say to them that you get to tell the other person, this is my hope for peacemaking for us. I I just felt like it was important to say that, like, you Mm -hmm. know, we need to have an expansive, bigger idea of peacemaking. But the other thing that I felt was that I, I've seen this over and over again in large groups where the lead pastor or the the executive director of a nonprofit learns about anti-racism. They bring in a DEI consultant and the thing that they want this person to do is to facilitate a large town hall where all of these issues of race and reconciliation, all of these like hot topic issues are kind of thrown out. And expecting all these different people with all these different stories and experiences and triggers to come to a place of peace in an hour and a half or two hours. Mm. And I, I just wanted us to enter into a conversation about like, when is it, when is the approach that you took with your dad, the conversations over and over again, when is that appropriate? And when do we tap out when we say like, oh, something like we're not going to get to a place but then also, like, what are some other ways that we can get to this place of bridging those ideological differences that mm-hmm. might not always look like always having conversations with each other? So it just, yeah, yeah it just opened up all these questions for me. Yeah, no, that that's, I, I think it's really profound. Like, I, I've got a page full of notes here, just listening to your experience. And, and there's, before I get into it with you, like, I feel sorrow. I, I feel sorrow that 
I think socialized into people who are proximate to power like me and and who can move through the world like I move through it, like the assumptions that we make that we can demand a listening without a level of self-awareness and self-interrogation that that causes us to come to you, Oshida, with a softened certainty, with an acknowledgement that I am not fully right and always partially wrong, that my perspective is not 2020. And I'm wondering if you can help me see something more clearly. Mm. Like if only I could navigate this world with commitments to those three sentiments, <laughs> you know, I just wonder, I wonder how that would interrupt my commitment to reaching for power rather than for your hand, mm. you know? And, mm. and so <laughs> I'm sorry that you had to experience that and absorb that. Uh, and thank you for bringing it to us and putting it on the table for us to look around at a little bit. Cause I, I think you're right. I think there's, there's a lot for us to learn from this. Can I offer a couple of thoughts, pull a couple of threads that I heard you say and get curious with you about them? Yeah, go ahead. I've, I've heard folks proximate to power, dominant culture folk, in particular white leaders, and I would even say white faith leaders. And this is, I think this is confessional. This is the stuff of repentance. When I'm in conversations with them and I hear them acknowledge that theological conversations about race and human hierarchy and white supremacy, you know, like conversations about these can be minimized to, you know, your husband TC's words, like a theological thought experiment, a mm -hmm. fun kind of project. Reason being, they recognize that nothing changes for them if nothing changes within our society. And so we we get to toss these conversations. I'm also thinking about human sexuality. Mm -hmm. For many white faith leaders, this is a this is an interesting thought project and mm -hmm. theodicy, but many don't experience the underside of what that theology in play feels like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm just wondering, how would you invite us who have some ideologies around things that when we embody these ideologies, it, it doesn't negatively impact us. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that, I, that ideology might look like exclusion from community. It might look like unjust policy to preference me over someone who doesn't look like me or whatever it is, or willingly participate in those systems and, right. and things like that. Yeah. How would you invite us to move beyond this as like thought experiment and kind of fun theodicy? How do we deepen our understandings of the stakes of this ideology when it's lived out? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that when I have watched what you are describing happen, the go-to from how do we get out of theodicy or fun thought experiment or debate into lived experience one of the things that I notice happens so often, and I think it's really unhelpful, is that they bring in a person who 
will be harmed by these kind of conversations. They bring them in to be their primary teacher while, while they're still kind of in that thought experiment debate stage of understanding this. And what I mean by this is like, you are learning and you're like, okay, now I want to figure out a lived experience around this. So then you as a group of white guys bring in somebody like me, maybe not somebody like me because I feel called and committed to being in those spaces, but another black leader or and. And they are the focal point and the person that has to speak for all Black people and mm-hmm. the person that has to educate you and the person that has to bear the weight of the harm for like microaggressions or misunderstandings mm-hmm. in that one conversation. So what I always encourage and what I think I've seen the most helpful is when white leaders have these conversations with each other as they are learning from the work of Black and Brown thought leaders. So Mm. taking Jesus and the disinherited and you white people, dominant culture people, you talk about it with each other. You have confessional moments where you say, oh my gosh, I didn't believe this, or I didn't know this. You form the questions that you have, and then you offer them to a a leader of color to come in and say, hey, these are the questions. Like the most respectful thing is like letting a leader of color come in fully prepared for what they're going to come in to and saying, these are the questions we have. Will you answer these questions? Because we're trying to figure out how to get this out of our head and heart and into our our context, our lived experience. So I think that there is an ease that people of dominant culture can have with each other to hash everything out in conversation because you don't have the emotional historic weight of whatever it is, the conversation is whatever the topic is and so i think it just takes a little bit extra Mm -hmm. care and work to not harm the person who's there to companion you into a new way of peacemaking oh she i hear what you're saying let me offer a thought just and maybe this is a a confessional reality (laughs) that is awakening in me is i have to acknowledge that i have been socialized into an understanding that is probably not my responsibility to change it's someone else's responsibility to change and so i think one of the things that has historically gotten in the way of me doing the work that you just suggested white identifying folk getting in a room acknowledging that our perspective is not 2020 vision there there's something that we don't yet understand and it's not just about consuming knowledge It's about fundamentally becoming different kinds of people. That takes a level of humility and courage for we who are proximate to power (laughs) that that, that is uncommon. And and so I I just want to offer that as a confessional piece because, you know, borrowing from Ben McBride in his book, Troubling the Waters, like the question is not what do we do? The question is who must we become? And I'm wondering how missing that question or failing to center the process of formation is actually interrupting our ability to bridge ideological difference. Or I wonder how what I'm suggesting framed the way or fueled the way that Rob approached you. Right. But yes, but I want to say this because formation should happen on both sides. So peacemaking is a process of sanctification which means both people go through a process of formation into a better, more holistic, flourishing version of themselves. And so while I described something that is a process for white folks, dominant culture folks, 
there is a process that I, as the person of color in the conversation or the marginalized person or the person who has been oppressed by these systems, whatever they are, there's a work that I have to do. And that is often the work that doesn't get any attention when we have conversations about peacemaking around reconciliation. And that is the work of being with other people in my social location, sharing our stories, those stories being held by a therapist, spiritual director, a trauma-informed coach, like a sacred space of healing, a sacred space of owning our belovedness, a sacred space of seeing you as beloved. So we're together as people of color or, or they're together as queer people or whatever. And you are looking across and saying, they're over there doing that work of understanding our history. That is a gift to us. They are beloved. And so when we finally do come together, we are coming together as people who have owned our belovedness, who want you to own your belovedness because we want to become the beloved community. So I think oftentimes we're like, the transformation happens in a conversation where we all come together and that just causes more harm. What if we change our process and say, we do some work separately and the work looks different because we want to be our very best versions of ourselves when we come together because we want to do the least amount of harm possible. And mm -hmm. so that's why when I... I'm coaching people of color in this work of anti-racism who I know they're in predominantly white institutions. I give space for all of the griping and all of the heartache and all the stories of betrayal. Like I give room for that. But then I also say, that's not the only story. And I also say like, okay, where can we find the people, the white people who are showing up and how do we take a moment to offer gratitude to God for that? Not in a like, not all white people, but saying like, there is hope. There is hope. For reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering then, uh, like I, again, in the vein of confession, I'm recognizing I'm embodying Rob's <laughs> spirit here. <laughs> I probably resemble Rob in, in, in many ways. No, you don't. Recogn I mean. Recognizing that like I have been socialized to believe that in a 30 minute conversation, I will have convinced you of the superiority of my idea and, and there will be peace between us or we will quote unquote, agree to disagree, go our separate ways and never again, reach for each other's hand. Mm. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is the actual work of bridging ideological difference, especially when there are power differentials demands the currency of trust which yes, requires education, but it also requires a pace and a commitment to a pace that the person who has probably experienced the abuse of power needs to dictate. Yeah. Uh, push back on that or... No, I think you're right. When my husband, who, who's a pastor, when he went through pastoral care uh, training, when he was in seminary, he heard this phrase that has been our go-to for whenever we do pastoral care. And that is that the hurt person gets to drive the emotional car or the person in pain gets to drive the emotional car. But the posture of it, of this phrase is that the one who is hurting the most gets to tell you what they need in that moment. So like when I go sit with the grieving mother who, you know, just miscarried, like, I don't come in and bring, like, a scripture about, like, 
God's ways are higher than or whatever. Like I don't come in with a little devotional. I don't even come in with food yet. Like I come in and I just sit with them and let them tell me like, gosh, I'm really hungry. Okay, now I'm pulling my phone out to DoorDash. Or where is God in this? Okay, I'm sitting as a spiritual director, you know. But I let them tell me what's going on because they're the ones who are actually living it. And they're the ones whose wholeness I want to see. Like I want to see them get through this so they get to have a say in how that looks. I don't get to have a say. And I think what was going on with Rob was that he had a picture of what wholeness and flourishing would look like, but he wanted to tell me how it was going to look. And I was like, no, I actually want to tell you because I know more. And I know that like, if we do this, you and I will be in a good place. If we do these things, we're going to stay in a place of mistrust. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really hard for an organization or for a leader whose big desire is efficacy or to prove that like I opened up this conversation and something good came out of it. Not I opened up this conversation and now our church is investing more resources, more time. There's more conversations going. Like I know that feels so hard, but love is the least effective thing that we're going to do. Efficacy is not the goal of a loving relationship. We can't get to that currency of trust just mm-hmm. in a 30 minute conversation. Right. And let me ask you this because I, you said the person hurting the most gets to tell you what they need. Yeah. And I think that is a beautiful sentiment, especially, say, in the context of your relationship with your husband, TC, presupposes a, a deep level of intimacy, presupposes a deep currency of trust. Let's play that out in different scenarios, though. Let's play with this for a moment, if you're okay. Sure. I think the one way that sentiment could be misunderstood is the person hurting the most gets to tell you what they need. So therefore, I have to prove to you that my hurt, that my pain Mm. is more intense than yours. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. I mean, that's that's a good way of looking at, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, and if I were to play out or maybe pull from what we see happening in in the horror and the violence of Israel and Palestine right now, what I think we see in the discourse is two peoples working as hard as they can to prioritize or to highlight or to center the history of their pain. And when they do that, it's not causing the other to say, oh, you're right. Let me hear. If I can prove that my pain is worse than yours, I think what we tend to do is then justify our negative behavior toward you. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. So so like, how, how would you... <laughs> so caution, caution us, because I love that sentiment. Or I think I see it play out in, in, in the streets of our cities here too, where when I hear our Black kin speak to the realities of power's abuse for 400 years. Mm-hmm. And, and then I hear white, our white kin say, yeah, but yeah, I had to X, Y, and Z, or there's reverse racism too. Or, and so what we don't have is an acknowledgement of each other's pain. We have mm-hmm. a totem pulling of each other's pain. And I wonder how that's perpetuating the cycles of violence in our relationships whether at a geopolitical scale or in our families and what we do about it. Right. So the thing that I keep thinking about this as you're talking, because I can imagine that Rob's pain was his cognitive dissonance, that here is this woman who has written stuff on peacemaking 
And she's invited by my white pastor to talk to us about this. And she seems really nice. And now I'm asking for her to give me time. And she's not. And she seems to be saying things that do not sound like what I imagine peacemaking would be. Like, it sounds very separatist. People of color do your work. White people do your work and then come together. And that is a distinct pain. The reason I can see that as a distinct pain is because I've spent enough time with other people of color talking about our own experiences with white people to people of color who are committed to peacemaking, talking about our experiences and choosing to see the humanity of those people, choosing to learn stories. Like these ideas did not come in a vacuum. There's history. Choosing to learn their stories and then having that in the back of my mind to say, when he presents this way to me, this is probably what's fueling all that. And so it keeps me really tender mm. and humble to where I do want to acknowledge his pain, but then say like, but this will bring up pain for me too. So how do we do the least amount of harm? I think the problem is, I, I will just speak for myself, when I don't do that work of learning you know, the experience of white people doing this work, when I don't keep myself tender to that, that's when I try to leapfrog my pain over there. Well, I'm black and I've been followed around in, in stores and da, 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 and all this, and you're just white and you get to walk away. Like, so that's the work that I do. And that's the work that I'm asking white people to do. It's like learn the stories of people of color and understand like, oh, that is a distinct pain because I think we leapfrog each other's pain when we don't fully understand the depth of each other's pain. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'm, I think I'm struck, Oshita, by this sentiment that people, and I'm actually going to, I'm going to borrow from something I heard you say in episode one, where you talked about befriending the uncomfortable. You talked in that episode about befriending jealousy and befriending disappointment one of the things I'm hearing you say is that people who have befriended pain, their own pain, tend to be better at seeing and validating the pain of another. Yeah. And, and I'm just wondering in the, in, in the conversation that we had in episode two, the conversation that we're having right now, I think it's dawning on me how important it is for me to develop a relationship with pain, my own and others. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, I wonder how that greases the skids of the ideological bridge, bridging. Yeah, You yeah. know, if I'm no longer threatened by my own pain and feel like I need to project it in order to justify my behavior or proje project it in order to say, you know, like, see what you did to me, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, if I'm able to be in relationship with my pain and also work really hard to understand mm -hmm. the pain of another, I wonder how that does fuel us to more readily reach for each other's hands than to dominate each other. Oh, hundred percent. So I'm actually experiencing something similar right now. There is someone who has committed a microaggression, a really hurtful racial microaggression towards me, actually a couple back to back. And I know that this one person has not befriended their pain. They do not sit well with uncomfortable emotions. And so I am choosing to let it go. Like I'm choosing to not 
go to that person and explain to them what they did because I know that they can't handle it. And I know that it will cause more conflict in our relationship than it's worth. So my goal is with this one particular person is to pray for them, is to share with them resources that I'm looking at around that microaggression as I'm reading it or as I'm coming around it, and then just trust the spirit. I think the biggest thing that I have had to learn, Jer, as a Christian peacemaker is that I'm not the Holy Spirit. And Mm. I think oftentimes we try to do the work of the Holy Spirit in these conversations by saying, if we just stick in this conversation long Mm. enough, we will win that person over. We will get them to a place of healing and hope. And, And it's like, no, sometimes we just need to back off and pray for that person and trust them to Jesus, the person of peace, and say, Spirit, do your work. And when mm-hmm. that time comes, they'll come back into my orbit with that one t- particular issue, and then we'll actually see peace mm-hmm. around that. Mm-hmm. Let, let me offer three threads that I'm I'm going to take out of this conversation as the Rob in the story. You know, I, <laughs> the, like I'm paying attention to this. What do I need to continue to deepen in and grow in personally in order to do this kind of bridging well? Three things pop for me, and then I'd love to hear any of the invitations that that you might offer. One, I, I'm hearing you say that it's really important for me in this illustration to just simply be willing to acknowledge power differentials. Yeah. Some of us are more proximate to whether that's authority, whether that that you know it's male, female, it's white, black, is whatever it is. Society has created power differentials that we sustain, and I'm hearing you in, invite me to acknowledge that power differentials exist. And I need to be aware of that as I move toward bridging difference with another. Number two, as I'm bridging, rather than centering my own pain, it will go so much better if I center and seek to understand the pain of of the other. And that takes a divine level of courage and humility that I want that to become the habit of my life. I want that to become the posture of my life. I want to seek to understand rather than to be understood. I'm not there yet, but maybe that's where that's the power of the gospel that needs to continue to do its transformative work in me as a peacemaker. Yeah. Third, I have to move at the pace of trust. And in this case, in the illustration that you raise, like I'm actually stimulated by conflict. You know, like <laughs> I want to move into it. I want to muck it up. I want to move through it. I want to slap hands and be like, well, wasn't that great? Now let's get on with it and be better than we were before. Uh, I've never known conflict to be transformed at the pace that I'm comfortable with. Mm, mm. And I'm hearing you invite me to, to move in this work of bridging ideological difference, especially when there's power differentials. I need to move at the pace of trust. And I want to highlight one thing that was especially convicting to me. I have to respect your boundaries in that. Mm. Because if I don't respect your boundaries that will compromise the possibility of the currency of trust to grow. And so, yeah, I, so those, that, that's what I'm ruminating on. That's where I want to move out of this conversation. Yeah. That First boundary- of all, would you give me, oh. w- w- reflect back <laughs> to me, would you give me any feedback on that? And then secondly, I wonder if there's any invitations that you would offer. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you on that, especially the boundary piece. Right now, there is an indigenous leader in our community that I, I really want to learn from, but they're not ready to take on anyone. And at first, when I asked, like, will you walk alongside me and help me understand? And they said, no, I got in my feelings. I was like, 
like you, I'm Googleable. Like I'm a trusted person. <laughs> like, and I wrote you such a nice email. And I realized mm-hmm. that I was wrong. Like I realized I was coming to this person, asking them to help me understand something. And they were like, I cannot help you understand that right now. And I felt entitled to their time. And so that boundary piece, I think it's so important. And I I don't think we often view boundaries as an important part of peacemaking, Mm -hmm. but it is. It's how I set those boundaries. And are those boundaries set with the flourishing of all people involved? Like that's the conversation that I have to Mm -hmm. constantly have with myself and my spiritual director, my therapist and all that. I think you're spot on. Like what we're talking about, it's removing this from a thought experiment or a debate into relationship. And that's why I noticed in me, when you were talking about your dad, I was like, oh, you already have a relationship. You're starting like a few steps ahead, you know, that there is that relational trust there. That's not always the case. You know, that was definitely not the case with me and Rob. That's not the case with me and this indigenous person. And so it takes time to build that relationship. My final thought is that just because I am the oppressed person in this conversation, or my my experience is one of of, a, an, of oppressed person, doesn't mean I get off of not having to do the work. It just, my work looks different. And that is my biggest invitation to other leaders of color whenever we talk, is that when I see that they're using shame or separating themselves from being curious about the lived experience of white people, like when I see that's going on, I try my best to say, I think that we have to be aware to do our own work because I don't want to live in a world where the power differential has flipped and I get to treat you like crap for the sake of peacemaking. That's not peacemaking. Oshita, thanks. You've given us a gift. And and as always, I think you've just opened up some more space for the spirit who roams untamed and forms us as peacemakers to do her work. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I want to commit to this to this work. I want to commit to it with you and friends who are listening in. Let's take heed. Let's move slowly toward relationship with courage and a lot of wisdom as we seek to bridge ideological difference. Amen. Thanks for this conversation, Jer. The Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is a production of Global Immersion and is made possible by our Embers community of monthly donors. Sincere thanks to The Brilliance for use of their song, Turning Over Tables. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion, forming everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides at globalimmerse.org.